Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message, which is brought to you by Pastor Todd Roberts. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. Good morning, church. Uh, I'm so happy to be around and be able to help out reading the scripture. Uh, I'm going to be reading 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. And the scripture for today is this. This is my second letter to you, dear friends. In both of them, I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the holy prophets said long ago and what our Lord and Savior command through your apostles. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the time of our ancestor, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out of the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for a fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's been patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. This is the word of the Lord. Great. Thank you, Oswaldo. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to see all of you on Zoom, and good morning to all of you who are watching on YouTube. It's uh, good to know after Boris's announcement on Monday that it won't be too long until we get to be back together in person. So uh, as I was thinking about this morning, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is in the entertainment industry in recent years, there's a fascination with apocalyptic themes. Um, whether it's zombie films or like, you know, zombie shows like uh, The Walking Dead or the, you know, the Final Avengers films uh, were all about the finger snap apocalypse, uh, which, you know, so this topic has always been a source of fascination for people. Now, thankfully, the Bible is not silent on this topic. It actually has a lot to say about the culmination of human history. So today, as we continue our series on the book of 2 Peter, we're going to be talking about the return of Jesus. Now, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, Jesus taught that at the culmination of world history, he would return to the earth in glory to reward the faithful, to judge his enemies, and to usher in the kingdom of God in its fullness. Now, I know, I know. I mean, this topic can create all kinds of responses in us, mostly fearful responses, because the Bible talks about some pretty dramatic events surrounding the second coming. You know, you've probably heard of Armageddon or the Antichrist or, or the judgments and hardships that will occur on the earth before the end. So it can create anxiety in us just thinking about the return of Jesus. And this is one of the reasons I think most people hope they won't be 
the generation in which all of this stuff happens, the generation in which Jesus returns. I think there's also a lot of confusion and misunderstanding around the return of Jesus because apocalyptic literature by its very nature uses a lot of symbolism and it can be interpreted in all kinds of different ways. And, and, and that means there's all kinds of speculation and theories out there about what's going to happen or when it's going to happen or who the major players are or what the different symbols represent. And that's led to a lot of confusion and misunderstanding about this topic. Or, you know, maybe if you're honest, you might feel somewhat embarrassed about the second coming. It's, it's not that you don't believe it, but it's something you don't really want to talk about because you know if you did that most people would probably think you're crazy. Now, personally, I have to confess that I have never preached on this topic before. And, and that's partly because there's a lot about it that I don't understand myself. I certainly wouldn't consider myself an expert on the return of Jesus. But mainly, I've been hesitant to preach on it because of all the negative connotations that go with this topic. I mean, I don't want to be seen as a doomsday prophet or a prepper Christian who obsesses over end time stuff. So I've mostly just avoided this topic. But one of the great things about preaching through a book of the Bible is that it forces you to deal with topics you wouldn't normally choose to deal with. And in the passage we're looking at today, I'm thankful that Peter forces us to address this topic because you know, something that's interesting about the early church is that in the early church, they were not embarrassed about the second coming. They weren't afraid of the second coming. They weren't hiding it in the doctrinal broom closet where, that you don't only find out about once you'd been a Christian for 10 years. This was a foundational doctrine for Christianity, which was taught early and often in the early church. And maybe more interesting, the second coming, like I said, it wasn't something they were dreading. The New Testament makes it clear that the early church was looking forward to it with great anticipation. So there's something about the second coming that is foundational to our understanding of life as Christians. And it is to our detriment if we ignore it. C.S. Lewis, in his essay, The World's Last Night, made this comment, and this is a long quote, but bear with me. He said this, there are many reasons why the modern Christian and even the modern theologian may hesitate to give the doctrine of Christ's second coming that emphasis which was usually laid on it by our ancestors. Yet it seems impossible to me to retain in any recognizable form our belief in the divinity of Christ and the truth of the Christian revelation without abandoning or even persistently neglecting the promised and threatened return. And he gives some examples. He shall come again to judge the quick and the dead, says the Apostles' Creed. This is the same Jesus, said the angels in Acts. This same Jesus shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Or hereafter, said our Lord himself, and by those words inviting crucifixion, shall ye see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. If this is not an integral part of the faith once given to the saints, I do not know what is. So if the second coming was something Jesus regularly talked about, 
if it's something the early church regularly talked about, it would be good for us to regularly talk about it as well. So today is our first real step as a church to talk about the second coming. But, but let me say that this is a massive topic that deserves really a whole series that we'll probably do at some point, but there's no way that we're going to be able to cover every issue and answer every question this morning. Uh, we're going to be narrow in our focus on this topic because in the passage we're looking at today, Peter is narrow in his focus on this topic. Now, just to recap where we're at in the book, Peter starts off by reminding us that we share in God's great and precious promises. And what's clear in the book is that, uh, what's clear in this letter is that um, one of the great and precious promises he's referring to is that Jesus is coming back. I mean, this is one of the promises. The second coming is one of the great and precious promises of Christianity. And then Peter turns and he begins to address his skeptics, you know, those who question not only the return of Jesus, but Christianity in general. And he, and he points to the events on the Sermon on, on the Mount of Transfiguration as a glimpse of what will happen when, uh, of what we'll all experience when Jesus returns. And then in chapter two, there's this long digression about false teachers. But then in chapter three, the passage we're looking at today, he resumes the argument that he began in chapter one against, you know, a, a, a refuting the people who doubt the return of Christ. So let's pick up the, the text in chapter three, verse three. He writes this, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come. So, so most importantly here, that this is no small point Peter is making. This is actually the main point of his letter. This is the real motivation that he had to write about all this stuff. And so, uh, but then he says that, that scoffers will come, not, not might come, but just like the false teachers, scoffers will come. And this wasn't just true for the early Christians, but this is true for every era of, of church history. In other words, if Peter were addressing us here today, he would tell us, you will encounter scoffers. You know, that's just part of being a Christian. You know, it, it always has been. It always will be. The world will never find Christianity cool. You know, it, it, they'll, they'll frequently mock it and belittle Christians um, as a result. You know, it, it, we have to accept that being mocked or scoffed at or scorned is part of following Jesus. Um, Jesus himself assured us of this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Such encouraging words from Jesus. But his point here is that the world has always reviled the people of God. Why would we think it would be any different for us today? But, but let me just also say this, that if we're going to be mocked, let's make sure that it's for the right reasons. You know, like believing and standing for the core tenets of our faith not doing weird things that we don't find in scripture or somehow using our faith to justify really bizarre or sinful behavior. I mean, sometimes let's be honest, the church is justly, it, it, it earns all the mockery it gets. 
So let's just make sure that if we're mocked, we're being mocked for the right reasons by standing for and believing in the core tenets of our faith. So Peter's assuring us, he's saying you, you will encounter scoffers. And he says that they will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. You know, as we looked at a little bit about this last week, it, you know, if people reject God's truth, it's often because they don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to do the, do things God's way. They want to do things in their own way, and they want to follow their own desires. And so, you know, the mockery and the scoffing is just a part of that. It's just a part of rejecting doing things God's way and choosing to do things their own way. And then he comes to the, the main argument that these scoffers and mockers are, are using against the belief in the second coming. He says, or he says, they will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Basically, the challenge of the scoffers, if I could just kind of put it in a nutshell, it'd be, what's taking so long, right? You Christians say Jesus is coming back. Well, where is he? Why is it taking so long for Jesus to return? The world just keeps carrying on as it always has. Where is your God? Now that line, you know, where's your God, is a standard form of taunting in the Old Testament. This is the way that Jews love to, uh, you know, maybe non-religious Jews used to taunt the, 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 the believing Jews. They would just say, where is your God? In Psalm 42, for example, uh, where is your God? And skeptics use this line again and again to taunt the faithful. And here they're using it to uh, taunt Christians about their belief in the return of Jesus. But their argument, you know, is that, look, everything's just carrying on the way it always has. It's been the same, same stuff is happening every day. You know, the sun rises and sets, the tides go in and out. Uh, it's just the seasons come and go. It's been this way since the beginning. And, and this argument is really a form of naturalism, which is the belief that everything has natural causes and rejects any belief in the supernatural. Now, the theologian Craig Blomberg points out that this is a remarkably similar idea to the modern-day atheist's uh, conviction that the world simply proceeds by analyzable scientific laws without any supernatural interruptions. And so Peter refutes this argument by pointing out how short-sighted it is. And he writes this, he says, they deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command. And he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. So Peter says, look, this worldview overlooks two great historical events that have already disproved their argument. The creation of the world from nothing and the worldwide flood. Interestingly, today, the Big Bang Theory of the universe's origin, which is held by most scientists, closely resembles the creation account in Genesis, where God created the world from nothing. And, and there's also growing evidence for an ancient flood of enormous proportions. <laughs> now, Peter's saying here that, that 
that the laws of nature are not a law unto themselves. They are subject to God. God is the one who created him, and God can choose to change them at any time simply by the word of his command, which he did at creation, and which he did again at the flood, and which he will do again at the end of history. So, so Peter's argument here is that since God has interrupted the normal course of nature in the past, it's plausible to expect him to do it again at the end of time with one last great intervention. And then he writes, he writes about it. He says this, and by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They're being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. So Peter is warning that just as God brought judgment in the past with water at the flood, in the future, uh, it will be judgment with fire at the second coming. Now, I recognize this sounds terrifying. I mean, and, and this could be a whole sermon in itself, and I'm actually going to say more about this next week. But for now, I, I just want you to follow Peter's point here, and that is if these scoffers were not so blinded by their own desires and their deliberate forgetfulness of what they know from the, from the past and the scriptures, what, what it teaches them, they would see the foolishness of denying the second coming simply because the world has been so constant for so long. So the naturalistic argument is short-sighted and it doesn't hold up. But actually, I think their question that also kind of goes along with, which is, you know, what's taking so long, is a fair question. I mean, after all, if they were wondering this roughly 35 years after Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven, then how much more do we wonder about this now, almost 2,000 years later? But Peter answers this by reminding us of something that the Old Testament taught about God's relationship to time. He actually quotes from Psalm 90, verse 4, when he writes this, but you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. Now, this might be difficult to wrap your mind around at first, but there is a sense in which God is outside of time. That's why he has no beginning and no end. Time itself is God's creation. He invented time when he created the universe. So God's relationship to time is very different from ours. It's a matter of perspective, really. It's like kids on a road trip asking, how much longer? When are we going to get there? You know, for them, a three to four hour car ride is, you know, it seems like an eternity, right? But for adults, we know it's not actually that long. It's just a matter of perspective. And what Peter's telling us here is that from God's perspective, it hasn't been a long time. Jesus's life and ministry on earth just concluded a couple of days ago. <laughs> but at the same time, God is minutely aware of everything that's happening in each microsecond on earth, which is one of the reasons he can be so aware of the tiniest details of our lives. So Peter's saying that the human conception of time is extremely limited. What seems long to you and I doesn't seem long to God at all. It's all about perspective. And then he, but then he moves on and he, he, he tells us something about how we interpret this apparent delay in the Lord's return. He says this in verse nine. He says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. 
He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Peter's saying, listen, you guys are misinterpreting the reason for God's delay. The fact that Jesus is taking a long time to return isn't an indication that the second coming is a false promise. It's an indication that God is patient. It's an indication that God cares about every person alive coming to know him because he doesn't want anyone to spend eternity apart from him. He wants everyone to repent and be saved. And this is the heart of the good shepherd. He, he doesn't want to lose any of his sheep. So Peter is saying, look, God's delay is a demonstration of his patience. And every day that we are given is an opportunity for us to repent and turn to him. But Peter assures us that the day of the Lord will come. Eventually, time will be up. He's very emphatic about it. He says it will come. So my question today as we close is, are you ready? You know, I don't want to walk away. From, I don't want you to walk away from this message today fearing the day of judgment because God, out of his love for you, has made it possible for that day to be a day of triumph and celebration, not a day that we need to fear. But some of us do fear the return of Jesus, even as Christians. And maybe one of the reasons for that is you know there are areas in your life where you know you are disobeying God. And the thought of Jesus returning is scary because the thought of facing Jesus with this sin in your life is terrifying. And if so if that's the case for you today, then the answer is simple. You just need to repent, as it says there. God wants everyone to repent. And, and, and by repenting, I mean, it's not just saying, I'm sorry. It, it, it's actually taking whatever steps are necessary to leave your sin behind. Now, for most of us, that's going to involve some form of talking to someone else about it. You know, you want to do that appropriately with people that you trust. Um, but most of us, if, if you keep your sin uh, secret, it, it becomes almost impossible to overcome. You know, for example, you're never going to overcome a porn addiction on your own. Uh, it's virtually impossible to do that. The best thing we can do is bring it into the light, whatever your issue might be, and use the power of community to help us move forward in freedom. The, the, I mean, there's a reason why the Alcoholics Anonymous group has a 12-step step program that is dependent on groups. You know, what they do is they harness the power of community to help these addicts overcome their addiction. I mean, without it, it's virtually impossible. So if there are places where you need to repent, don't let another day pass without taking action to get rid of it, to, to, to change your life, to, to actually walk out your repentance. And so maybe that starts by talking to your life group leader, or maybe it start, starts with talking to a close friend who you trust, who follows Jesus as well. Talk to somebody in church leadership. You know, we're here to help you. But another reason that you might not feel ready for the return of Jesus is that you're not sure if you're a Christian. The only way that we can really be sure of that is, is by placing our faith in Jesus. You know, what he did on the cross cleanses us of our sin. And, and it's, it, listen, it's, it's not about, like a lot of people believe, I'll go to heaven if I'm a good person. But listen, good people don't go to heaven. Only forgiven people go to heaven. 
And being a Christian means that, that we believe that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he paid the penalty for your sins so that you can be forgiven of your sin and cleansed of your shame and have the promise of eternity with him. That's what it's all about. It, it's really about what Jesus did for us, not about somehow being good enough to go to heaven because how good is good enough? What standard are you measuring it by? It's a very insecure way of trying to, to measure, uh, to, me to, to decide whether or not you're gonna measure up one day. No, no, our hope of heaven our hope of having a relationship with God is based on what Jesus did for us and us putting our faith in him. That's what it means to be a Christian. But my question for you as you're listening today, if, if you've never made that decision, what's holding you back? Maybe you have questions or you need to ask things or things that you need to, to wrestle through. And, and those can be totally legitimate. But, but I also want to encourage you not to use questions as a stalling tactic. You owe it to yourself to think through this carefully and make a decision and not delay. Now, some of you who are listening today, you might be ready to make that decision today. And if so, I want to invite you to do that by leading you through a simple prayer. Now, there's nothing magic about this prayer. It's just a, a way you can express your heart to God. So I want to invite you to pray with me now if you'd like to begin a relationship with God. Jesus. I believe you came to set me free from my sin and to reconcile me to God. So today I choose to put my faith in you. I choose to turn from my sin now and, and to make you the Lord of my life. Come into my life, set me free from my sin, and fill me with your spirit. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer with me, then the good news right now is that all of heaven is rejoicing over you. Uh, you've made the most important decision of your life and you will never be the same. But listen, the Christian life, as I was saying, is not meant to be lived alone. If, <laughs> it's meant to be lived in community. And if we were meeting in person, I would urge you to come talk to me after the service so we can help you begin your journey of faith and walking with Jesus. But since we're just online today, I, I want to encourage you to email uh, email us at I've decided at antiochsheffield.org.uk. And that'll allow us to follow up with you and help you as you begin this journey of faith. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.